But you can turn with in your Bibles to the prophet Jonah, chapter 1, as we continue a new series in the book of Jonah, and we'll do Nahum after. Uh, there's that connection with Nineveh there. Uh, we may do some more of the minor prophets as well, but Jonah won't take long. <laughs> Nahum probably won't take long either. Um, so it'll be a fun four weeks in Jonah. So we're going to look at the, the whole chapter this morning or this evening. Um, we're going to just act, sorry, we're going to go to verse 16 in the Hebrew. It just goes to verse 16, uh, chapter se- uh, one, verse 17 is actually two, one in the Hebrew. So we'll go to one 16. Uh, we'll begin reading at verse one. And even though he's a prophet, it almost reads more like a narrative. So you'll see that as we go through, uh, begin reading at verse one. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had lain down, and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, Why do you, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, go call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? So he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them, And they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more uh, tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they cried out to the Lord and said, we pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life and do not charge us with innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our great God, we are thankful for your sovereign work of salvation towards undeserving sinners. Thank you that you are the God of justice, but we're also thankful that you are the God of mercy and grace. And thank you for the mercy and grace that we see extended to undeserving wretches like us that are here. And thank you, O God, that you move in many mysterious ways, even to save wretched people like the Ninevites, even these wretched people like the Mariners, and even wretched people like us. So may we see your mercy, may we see your sovereignty, may we put our faith and trust in you. And would you protect us as your people from backsliding? Would you keep us from drifting away from your word? May we lean upon it always. May we trust in your word always. And may we trust in Christ always uh, as we make our way to that celestial city. So we ask once again, you'd give us illumination from on high. May we see your grace and your mercy. May we see your kindness 
uh, even toward a city like Nineveh. So be with us now by your spirit, uh, uplift, encourage, uh, strengthen, and rebuke. And we're thankful that you do this, all these things with your word. So be with us now by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, it's no surprise in God's word, there are certain things that are difficult to comprehend and understand. But for the most part, God's word is not that difficult when you consider the main ideas and the main thrust of scripture. There's a creator, we are the creature, the creature sinned against the creator, and we need salvation that comes from someone else. That really is the gist of scripture. That's all uh, the, you could summarize it in that way. And for the most part, even when we come to God's commandments and come to understand how we ought to live as redeemed saints, for the most part, it's not that we don't understand, but it's sometimes that we don't accept what God has laid forth in his word. And certainly this comes up a lot with the doctrine of sovereignty. People don't like giving God control. People don't like giving God command. People don't like recognizing God as a sovereign ruler over his world, especially when it comes to salvation. God really is the one who is the creator who made this world, and all things are made for his glory. Yes, even the wicked for the day of doom, as Proverbs 16, 4 says. That's not hard for us to grasp conceptually. It's just hard for us to accept. And the same thing is true when we come to Jonah and we see the command that God gives to him. It wasn't hard for Jonah to uh, co uh, comprehend what God was saying. It was hard for him to accept what God was saying. God is going to be merciful. God is going to be gracious to an enemy of Israel. And that was hard for Jonah to grasp. So rather than obey God's commission, he tries to flee from his presence. Jonah really isn't the best of prophets, uh, but it highlights God's mercy and grace, even to Jonah and even to the Ninevites in this book. It's also important for us to consider some of the historical features of the book. There isn't a lot there, uh, but there certainly are some parallels with Second Kings. Uh, Jonah really is an 8th century prophet to the northern kingdom. Remember, it's a divided kingdom, Israel in the north and uh, Judah in the south. He is a prophet, probably a little bit before, but around the same time as Amos and Hosea. Uh, they were in the north. Isaiah and Micah are in the south, but he's around that same time as them. Uh, it was a dark time in Israel, disobedience, wickedness. There was no king that did what was right in the northern kingdom. So it certainly is a dark time. Uh, in the land of Israel. But one thing that's very unique about Jonah's call is God tells him, go to your enemy and call them to repent. For the most part, all the prophets stay within Israel. Even the prophets that have oracles against nations, it's against them in the comfort of Israel. It's not so much go to those nations and prophesy against them there. So it is a different, unique call that Jonah receives. And I think the main purpose can be summarized by two words, sovereignty and mercy. God's sovereignty over the nations and God's mercy towards the nations. God glory, uh, God's glory isn't just for Israel. And so this main idea is we see it in two primary parts. Uh, Jonah chapters one and two, which focus in on Jonah's resistance. And then Jonah chapters three and four, where we see Nineveh's repentance. And so today we'll see the first part of Jonah's resistance. And the problem is very clear. It's when the prophet of God disobeys. Again, the word is clear, 
but the prophet tries to flee from Yahweh's presence. Now, last time I checked, we're not all prophets. And I think there is an application that can be made uh, to the idea of backsliding for all of God's people. There can be an application where we can highlight how sometimes God's people drift from his word. Now, thankfully, God's sovereign fatherly displeasure awakens us out of our drifting and cause us to lay hold of our anchor once again. But sometimes we need a harsh providence to awaken us from our slumber. And thankfully, God does that for us. And so in Jonah 1, we see how the fleeing prophet and Israel with him and us as readers as well are reminded about the fear of God. The fleeing prophet is reminded about the fear of God. And so we'll look at this flight under two headings this evening. First of all, we'll see when the prophet flees, verses 1 through 9. And then secondly, when the mariners fear, verses 10 through 16. So when the prophet flees, verses 1 through 9, and then when the mariner fears in verses 10 through 16. So let's first look at when the prophet flees in verses 1 through 9. And notice we see the flight from God's presence uh, in verses 1 through 3. And notice we see the prophet call, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Jonah is mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. It is the same man. It is the same character. And in 2 Kings 14, 25, we see he he is a prophet under the reign of Jeroboam II, 786 to 746 BC for all you nerds out there. Uh, But verse 25, he restored the territory, this is Jeroboam, of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant, Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath, Heifer. So uh, he prophesied to a wicked king. It was a prosperous era under Jeroboam II, but it was, he still nonetheless was a wicked king. And he really is one of the earliest, what we call latter prophets. Perhaps he succeeds uh, Elisha. Um, so he's one of the earliest ones that are there. And one commentator calls it a legend, but there's a legend uh, that he is the son who was restored to the widow of Zarephath in 1 Kings 17, but there's not, there's like no evidence for that. But nonetheless, the point is he was close and near to Elisha uh, as a prophet. And so one of the earliest ones, so you'd think he'd know better, uh, but nonetheless, the word of the Lord comes to him. And even that highlights his privilege. The prophets, typically when they were called, they were caught up to the counsel of God. They were called in an extraordinary way. Pastors are called in an ordinary way. A desire born out of right motives, gifts and graces that God gives, uh, the recognition of the church and God's providential openings. Ordinary. Prophets had this extraordinary call to the counsel of God. And so we see this with Micaiah, we see this with Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, and so it highlights his special privilege, one who was caught up to the counsel of God, and one who acted as a guardian of the theocracy in the courts of the kings to direct them in the way they should go. Yeah, Jeroboam II was a bad king, but he did still listen to Jonah and did secure uh, some sort of military uh, uh, victory and prosperity for the northern kingdom 
And so Jonah had this great privilege. Jonah had this special uh, call from God as a prophet. And now God comes to him again and says in verse two, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and cry out against it for their wickedness has come before me. Again, this is a shocking and unique request. Prophets typically didn't travel outside of Israel, and the Assyrians were hostile towards Israel. He is calling the prophet to go to an enemy and call them to repentance. That's why Jonah doesn't like that. Jonah, we don't see why he flees in verse 3, but he tells us in verse 2 of chapter 4, it's because you're merciful, God, and I knew you were slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, but I can't stand the Assyrians. I can't stand my enemies. In a lot of ways, it's nationalism. It was just for Israel rather than spreading God's glory to the ends of the earth. And Nineveh, they were known for their cruelty. They were known for their harshness. They were known for their wickedness. And so now God is saying to him, go to Nineveh. And not only that, Nineveh is far away. So he'd have to travel a long way. It's not like first class or even just coach, where you still get, you know, pretzels and a drink along the way and some food if it's a long enough flight. It would have been a trek. It would have been a jaunt. It would have taken some time and there would have been bandits and bears and lions and tigers. So, if, yeah, I don't want to go to Nineveh. Not only are there my enemies, but I might die along the way. So, and that's probably just, you know, implied. But the main thing is he can't stand them because they're his enemies. And so, what does he do instead? Verse 3, but Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish. Say Tarshish five times fast, but he arises. And so you're probably like, well, okay, God said arise, and now he's arising. But instead, he flees the opposite direction away from the presence of the Lord. Tarshish was one of the outskirts of Israel's known geography. He is going into exile in a lot of ways. He's going to the farthest parts of the world in a lot of ways. He does not want to go to Nineveh. He goes the opposite direction away from the presence of the Lord. And notice how he continues to go down. Don't miss Jonah saying, I'm, it's probably perhaps biographical. He's talking the third person, but don't miss how Jonah talks about how he goes down, 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 even all the way close to Sheol. So he goes down. He went down to Joppa, which was a port. He found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare, and he goes down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, what does it mean that he fled from the presence of the Lord? Two things, I think. One, he's disobeying the Lord. That's very clear. He doesn't want to do what the Lord said. He's fleeing from the Lord. But the second meaning or the second way we can take flee from the presence of the Lord is geographically. Think about Israel at this time. Think, I know they're divided, but remember God chose them out of all the nations and he chose a special place where he wanted his name to be a special place to worship, namely in Jerusalem. What is he doing? He is going to the farthest part away from Jerusalem the farthest part away from the presence of the Lord, where the Lord chose to make his special favorable presence with the people of Israel. 
Now, as we're going to see, you can't flee from the presence of the Lord, but there is a covenantal aspect when it highlights he's going away from the place that God had chosen for his people. He's fleeing from the tabernacle. He's fleeing uh, from the Ark of the Covenant. He's fleeing from the mercy seat. He's fleeing from where Yahweh chose to make his presence in a favorable way. So he thinks he can flee and he's trying to run away. He goes to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But verse four highlights you can't flee from God. And notice the fearful storm God hurls or flings. The word hurl is repeated a few times here. Notice verse four. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea. There was a mighty tempest on the sea, so the ship was about to be broken. It was a storm that comes from God. I know we all think about Jonah and the big fish, but as Ferguson points out, it's not so much about the fish, it's about Yahweh. It's about the God of the sea and the God of the dry land, and one cannot flee God. I think Psalm 139 Uh, comes to mind when we consider the omnipresence of the Lord. Verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the the light are both a light to you. Now, Psalm 139 is very comforting. Jonah chapter 1 is not. The Lord sent out a great wind on that sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. So the ship was about to be battered. Yahweh flings, Yahweh hurls. And the vessel of flight is becoming a vessel of destruction as it is about to be battered and destroyed by the sea, by the wind that God has brought. Then we start to see some responses from the men on board. Notice verse 5, the mariners, they are afraid. This is different perhaps than what they've been used to. These would have been men who have known the sea and known how to operate on it. But this one was different. They were afraid. And notice, usually when death is about to come, people ponder about what would happen after death. So what do they do? They cry out to their God. Jonah has no problem with Gentiles per se, right? I mean, he's had no problem getting in a boat and going away from the, the city of Nineveh. But... Uh, He just doesn't like Nineveh. And so these men were crying out to their God. God, save me. Molech, save me. Baals, whoever their God is, please save me. So they cry out, they pray, but will their gods listen? Will their gods answer? And so they cry out, they pray, but then they also decide to fling or hurl some cargo to lighten the load. Maybe things will get better if we do that. We'll throw our goods off the ship. The cargo that was in the ship into the sea, they threw it in order to lighten the load. So they're fearful. They're afraid. There's a panic on the boat. But look at Jonah, verse 5. But Jonah had gone down, gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had lain down, and was fast asleep. This calamity is because of him, but he doesn't seem to care. Down. Down he goes, getting nearer to Sheol. 
He's sleeping. They're fearful. And then notice what the captain says to him in verse 6. So the captain came to him and said to him, what do you mean, sleeper? How is it that the boat is being flung around and you're still snoozing in the belly of the boat? What are you doing? What is happening? What is occurring? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. Now, even the language of arise would have been haunting for Jonah, right? God said to him, go, arise. And here this captain is saying, arise. God even uses this captain perhaps to awaken him just a little bit. But arise, call on your God. Are the other gods not listening? Are the other gods not paying attention? Are the other gods having a nap? Are the other gods taking a leak? That's actually exactly what Elijah says concerning the Baal. Where's your pro- Where's your God? Perhaps he's relieving himself. That's what the gods of heathens are like. And that's why we sung Psalm 115. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory. Because of your mercy, because of your truth, why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold. The work of men's hands, they have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk, nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. Now, what's so very uh, telling and so very serious is perhaps what this uh, captain is saying is also an important lesson for Israel. Israel was worshiping Baals, right? (laughs) Israel was worshiping the Ashtoreths. Israel was worshiping the Molechs, Israel and Judah. And sometimes they were worshiping false gods rather than the one true God. See, the lesson isn't just about God's sovereignty and mercy for nations. It's also about an indictment against Israel and how they don't fear the one true God. It's a lesson for them as much as it was for the heathen on this boat. Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. And so then they cast lots, and God's province exposes Jonah, verses 7 through 9. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Probably what it was, they had this little, you know, cup. They probably had various things that designated each person that was there. They probably shook it. And the first one to fall out was how that lot perhaps was cast. Uh, It was used in Israel. And certainly you see that in Proverbs 16. But it shows the sailors in their dire straits. They're ready to try anything to try and figure out what is going on so that we may not die. And so the lot is cast upon Jonah. And they say to him in verse 8, then they said to him, please tell us for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And all that questioning is reminding Jonah of what he should be doing. And notice he doesn't mention one thing in his answer. He doesn't say, I'm a prophet of the Lord. He doesn't mention that. He says, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. 
What a great witness, by the way. <laughs> I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. I believe what he confessed is true. I believe that what he says, I believe that he believes that to be true, but he's still fleeing from God and fleeing from the command that God had given to him. He is a Hebrew. He fears the Lord, the God of heaven and earth. And he realizes he cannot hide from him. He made the sea and the dry land. Whether I'm on the sea or out at sea or whether I'm on dry land, God is the same God, and I cannot flee from his presence. I cannot hide from him. A Hebrew cannot hide from him. A pagan cannot hide from him. God's sovereignty is overall. It extends not just to Israel, but beyond Israel. And God is the God of heaven and earth. God is the God of the sea and dry land. Now, almost all the commentators pointed out perhaps a parallel. I hope you have that parallel in your mind about another time where some men were on the sea and they were quite fearful and someone was sleeping, although he wasn't uh, someone sleeping in the boat. And then he gets up and tells the wind and the waves to stop. And what happens? They were exceedingly afraid. For who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him. You see, God is the God overall, and Christ is the Lord of creation. That's what the apostles want us to see in the Gospel of Mark, in the Gospel of Matthew, in the Gospel of Luke, that Jesus is the Lord of creation. Fully God and fully man, even when he walks on water and he passes by and he walks upon the waves, it shows that he is the Lord over all. He is king he is the one that even the wind and the waves obey him. Now, I think one thing that we can see from these verses, and one thing we can take away and ought to be aware of, is when God's people drift. Or perhaps another way to say it is when God's people backslide. There are true Christians who I believe will not fall away from salvation. They cannot fall away from salvation, but that doesn't mean that God's people won't have periods of backsliding, that sometimes that we, ought, we do things we ought not to, we do things we shouldn't do, we do things we ought not to, and long periods of uh, going through long periods of that very thing. The idea of backsliding is found in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 uses the language of drifting uses the language of not being anchored and grounded. You see, we're, if we're swimming up the stream, we're, either, we're never being in the same place, we're never being in the same spot, we're either swimming upstream or we're going downstream. But in Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, he says, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Remember the Hebrews there were concerned, uh, there was the concern that they were wanting to go back to the old covenant. Why? When you have the true word. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed by those who heard him? God also bearing witness both the signs and wonders with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. God's true people will never fall away. There are temporary believers 
that might look like believers, but they've never laid hold of Christ, they will fall away. You see that with the parable of the sower. There are four seeds sown, and only one is true. But the one that is true, those shall not fall away, but we can still be wayward. I love Martin Booser. He's got his, uh, on the true care of souls, he has five categories of sheep, strong sheep, weak sheep, herding sheep, wayward sheep, and lost sheep. I think the implication is that those who are once strong sheep can be wayward sheep. You see, Jonah was a prophet, wasn't he? (laughs) Jonah was the one who was caught up to the counsel of God, yet he drifted away. That's why mature Christians should ever think we've arrived. That's why mature Christians should ever think, I don't need to pray anymore. I don't need to read my Bible anymore. Look where I've come from. That's why pastors need to not go, I've arrived. I'm a pastor. Everything's great. Everything's fine. We must always press on in the things of God, always seek to grow in the things of God, pressing on toward the prize that awaits God's people. We can't say I'm this many years in the faith. I can just coast now until the end. And most of the time when we drift, it's usually because we're not following God's word. We're drifting away from God's word. And it doesn't happen overnight, does it? It's like that frog in the pot. You put the frog in the pot and just turn up slowly. It's very, very subtle to start with, isn't it? You stop perhaps reading your Bible and praying. You stop attending church. You stopped engaging in those spiritual disciplines that are good for us as we grow. We stop laying hold to the means of grace. We stop laying hold to Christ. And it just kind of happens in a subtle but slow yet not so good sort of way. And again, I think it's important to highlight that our Christian duty as redeemed saints is not hard to understand. Fear God and keep his commandments, right? I mean, that's it. That's what we're called to do. It's just hard to do that, isn't it? And it's hard to do it without clinging and walking in the Lord Jesus Christ and relying upon his word day by day. Our Christian walk must be filled with prayer and being filled with God's word that it dwells in us richly, that he might strengthen us along our way. But we must beware that we drift. So that's when the prophet flees Verses 1 through 9, let's then look secondly at when the mariners fear in verses 10 through 16. And notice what a pathetic witness the prophet is in verses 10 through 12. The men were exceedingly afraid and said to them, why have you done this? There are many times in the Old Testament where heathens, (laughs) Gentiles, say to the people of God in one way or another, what are you doing? In fact, this happens a lot with Abraham, the, you know, the two times that he says, hey, this is my sister. Both times, the Pharaoh and Abimelech are like, why are you doing this? Why are you being so foolish? Why are you being so stupid is a proper way uh, to take that. There, that's the implication. Why have you done this foolish, silly thing? The men were afraid. They were fearful. Again, fear plays an important role in these verses and said to him, why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. 
He informed them of what he has done. He is being a pathetic witness before them. He was supposed to go to Nineveh and should have trusted in the words of God. Again, it shows how a strong Christian can be wayward when we do not obey the voice of God, even as redeemed saints. We can go through periods where we don't obey the voice of the word of God. We neglect the means. We neglect those things that he has provided. In fact, chapter 17 of our confession, Perseverance of the Saints, paragraph 3 talks about that. And thankfully, God restores us and nudges us and reminds us with his word. But we can go through those times, and we ought to pray that we do not. Jonah did not trust in the Lord. He instead tried to flee from his presence. He tried to run away. Now, there is a contrast. Uh, almost all the commentators point this out. There was one in a similar sort of nautical situation who did trust in the Lord, the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 27. Now, the mariners didn't listen to him, but Paul had to get to Rome, and he said to them, he talked about how if uh, there were certain conditions that need to be met, but if you keep those conditions, everyone stays, uh, not one shall be lost. And God proved to be a faithful witness. Uh, Paul proved to be a faithful witness, and God affirmed what Paul uh, said. And so Jonah is not that way, but we're going to see how God does something marvelous as well, despite Jonah. But notice verse 11. They said to him, what then shall we do that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. We tried praying to our gods. They don't seem to hear us. We tried throwing things off the, you know, the starboard side, but it didn't work. Uh, what shall we do? And notice the path forward. Notice he's still very much, he knows why he's done, why this is happening, but he still seeks death. Verse 12. He said to them, pick me up, throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that this great tempest is because of me. He seeks death rather than prayer. And why that's important is because it makes the fish all more remarkable, doesn't it? That this one who would rather be thrown into the sea is saved by a fish that swallows him in chapter 2. And we will see that next week, Lord willing. See, the fish God sends is the salvation Jonah needs. He is near Sheol, but God will deliver him. And thankfully, God also delivers these other mariners as well. Notice in verses 13 through 16, we see the unlikely converts in the storm. So they hear what Jonah says. He says, throw me out of the sea. Nevertheless, verse 13, the men rode hard to return to the land, but they could not. You cannot thwart Yahweh. But the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. And notice what they pray. Save, forgive, you are sovereign is essentially what they say. Therefore, they cried out to the Lord. You see, Jonah had said he's a God-fearer. This is all happening because of me. Jonah's doing something terrible, but they recognize that it's God who's doing this very thing. Again, it's a pathetic witness, but God is still witnessing to who he is. We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life. Save us is what they are saying. Don't let us die because of this man and do not charge us with innocent blood. Forgive it shows that the law was written on the heart. They understood something about 
innocent blood. Do not charge us with this very thing. Say, forgive, and you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Only you can save. Only you are sovereign. Only you are the one true God, perhaps is what they are saying. And so they do what Jonah said. So they picked up Jonah, verse 15, threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Jonah's in the sea. The tempest stops. And what's so interesting, the word for tempest, the word for great storm uh, that we see in this chapter is usually used in the Bible to designate a divinely induced storm. Yes, there's natural storms in the course of you know, the course of meteorology, I have no idea what that, how that all works, but there are certainly natural ones. But in the Bible, the way this word is used, it is for God's divinely induced storms. And God brings it about for a specific reason that is to certainly to chastise Jonah, but also to save Jonah as well. So Jonah's in the sea. Uh, he is thrown in. The sea ceased from its raging. And notice the sacrifice these men give, verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. Fear has been a major theme. Fear of the tempest, fear of Yahweh, fear of what's going on, and yeah, fear of Yahweh. The men feared the Lord. Jonah said, this is the God I fear. This is why this is happening. If you throw me out of the boat, it will stop. I mean, come on, what a, what a witness that is, right? Throw me out, it'll stop. And so they throw him out and it stops. And so what do they do? They fear the Lord and they offer sacrifices to him. Their fear for life leads to a fear of Yahweh. It's an important lesson for God to see God's mercy, an important lesson for the nations. But again, it's important for Israel, who was not fearing him. Fear me, obey me, trust in me. The Lord of the world is the Lord of Israel. Why will you not obey me? So they offer sacrifices to God. Um, they offer a vow to worship the one true God is probably that, that the God of Israel would be their God. That's probably why the vows are mentioned there. I do believe it is genuine because of the sacrifice and the vows. And Gil uh, also um, agrees. If these men were truly converted, as it seems as if they were, they were great gainers by this providence. For though they lost their worldly goods, they found what was infinitely better. God to be their God and portion. And it may be observed of the wise and wonderful providence of God that though Jonah refused to go to preach the Gentiles at Nineveh, for which he was corrected, yet God made this dispensation a means of converting other Gentiles. See how God saves these unlikely converts in the most unlikely of ways? Now, I'm not saying we disobey God just to see what will happen, but look how merciful God is to these Gentiles who are simply collateral damage in Jonah's mind. God is a God who is merciful and gracious. And I think what we can take away is to see that God is the God who restores. He saves and redeems undeserving sinners but he also restores wayward 
Christians. Notice how the providence and word of God usually awakens us. That's why we can never fall away. We can fall under God's fatherly displeasure, but in the course of life and in the course of as we uh, hopefully are under his word, he reminds us. Restore, he restores backsliding sheep by way of difficult providences, by gentle rebuke, and even church discipline. Church discipline is for the purity of the church, but it is hopefully as well for the restoration of a wayward saint. And you do see this in the books of First and Second Corinthians. Remember First Corinthians 5 in that disciplinary case, the man who had his father's wife? Well, they engaged in discipline before him, and he was restored. Because he's probably the one mentioned in 2 Corinthians 2, when he tells them to forgive him. You see, God takes hard providences, God takes gentle rebukes, and God takes uses discipline to correct his wayward saints. And he does so in a loving, sometimes harsh, but in a loving way to reassure and restore his wayward saints. But also, thankfully, he does redeem lost sheep. These mariners do not have much time to consider their end. Yet Yahweh proved who he was, and he redeemed these ones. Is that the point of the entire book? God is a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. A sovereign, merciful God. Well, let us pray. Thank you, O Lord, that you are a gracious God and your providences are so very wise. Thank you that you forgive us for our waywardness. Thank you that you forgive us for our cold and deadness. Thank you that all our sins uh, are forgiven in Christ, past, present, and even the ones that we shall do in the future. We do ask if there are me- if there are any wayward sheep here today, those who are drifting from your word, that you would restore that you would gently remind, that you would convict, and thank you that you do so uh, in many different ways. We We don't like those frowning providences, but we're thankful that they do teach us uh, about you. They they teach us our dependence upon you, and sometimes uh, they correct us and awaken us in our sleep. So we pray that we would be renewed in Christ, strengthened in Christ, that we would live for Christ to honor and glorify him. And we are thankful that you truly are the God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you save undeserving sinners in the most interesting of ways. So thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. And may we be encouraged and reminded of that this day, uh, that you are the God of all grace and comfort. So be with us now by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.